Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As we enter into the third week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is Russia winning its war? To discuss the state of the Russian armed forces and the war in Ukraine, I'm joined by Dr. Taras Kuzio of the Henry Jackson Society. Dr. Kuzio predicted Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2010, worked for NATO in Ukraine, and has decades of experience analyzing Russia and Ukraine. Is Russia losing its war in Ukraine? I think it is losing it in all sorts of ways because Russia has miscalculated both domestically inside Russia. This is not as popular as Crimea eight years ago. It's miscalculated vis-a-vis Ukrainian resistance. And of course, it's miscalculated uh, thinking that the West will be divided and provide a very weak response on sanctions. So it's miscalculated on three fronts. Uh, I don't think the Russian military... Plans are going to pl- are doing very well, very high levels of Russian casualties, a lot of Russian military equipment destroyed. And I don't see what the end game is necessarily, because even if they install a pro-Russian puppet, he'll probably last a few days before he's assassinated. So I don't think things are going to plan. The, of course, what's horrible about it all is that in the meantime, whilst the Russian army is losing... And whilst the Russian economy may go down the tubes because of sanctions, a lot of Ukrainian civilians will be killed and the number of refugees will skyrocket. How can we possibly know, and I think this is a really good sort of point in this interview to explain to viewers, how can we know what's going on in Ukraine with any sort of veracity? When you look at images and uh, satellite images and videos and things like this, it's difficult for people to sort of gauge what's true and what isn't. So what should people do when they're looking at this stuff to know what's true and what's false in a war situation? Well, I mean, every day on social media, and I mainly use Twitter, there are countless videos of destroyed Russian equipment. Um, I don't keep a day-to-day running tally of these of the, of this equipment, but but I, I can't see how this can be made up. I mean, this is not fake news when you see destroyed tanks and, and trucks and lots of casualties. Now, the number of casualties the Ukrainians are claiming, 11, 12, that sort of region, thousand, could be exaggerated. I mean, it's going to be an estimate, but it certainly seems to be very, very high. So it's getting up in that direction um, just by the fact that there's been so many attacks on various convoys and, and, and Russian sort of units. Quite a few high-level Russian generals or senior commanders have been killed. The Russians have admitted that. So the ferocity of all of that, I think there's no question. A lot of that is down to, on the one hand, Ukraine, Ukraine having its own decent weapons. And of course, British, Swedish and Javelin, Stingers, Turkish drones, all of that combined. In some cases, Ukraine aircraft. I mean, one of the fallacies, well, two fallacies of Western so-called experts on the Russian military prior to the invasion were that Ukraine would fold in one or two days. And secondly, that Russia would, would obtain pretty quickly air superiority. Neither of those has happened. So I think those Western so-called experts on the Russian military will have a lot of egg on their face um, in the same way as, as they have in the Kremlin. I think that this is a, you could say this is a comparable to the war that the Soviet Union waged in Afghanistan. That was eight for over eight years. 
There were 15,000 casualties there. If 11,000 is true, that's a hell of a lot over 10 days because that was 15,000 over eight years. But then in the 80s, the difference between then and now is that now you have YouTube. Now you have social media. Now everybody has a mobile phone. Uh, Ukraine soldiers who have just destroyed a convoy are filming it and putting it up on social media um, straight away because they want to brag, right? That's pretty normal. And they want to send it to the Ukrainian military headquarters to confirm what's happened. Remember that the US, NATO are providing in-house, or as it were, intelligence of Russian military convoys, of Russian military activities. So the Ukrainians are getting pre-warning intelligence from the West as to where the Russians are going, which allows them then to target those Russian troops. And so I don't think there's really much ability here to sort of fake it, as it were, if anything, I'm, I'm finding there's information overload and analysis, uh, videos, social media. There's a lot of, lot of stuff out there. This is a war where there's, there's going to be a lot of information, not only for us as analysts, as journalists, analysts, uh, academics, but also for future war crimes trials. Well, what's fascinating, and you're totally right on that last point about the huge amount of information, is I suppose throughout the last 150 years or so, wars have been more reported during the conflict back home domestically. So even in Crimea, in the Crimean War, British and French journalists were going out there and reporting what was going on. Obviously, on the Russian side, it wasn't the same. And then when you get to World War I, you've got actual photographs of what's going on in the trenches, and that's being sent home. And now, take us to present day, this is probably the most unprecedented amount of information we're seeing coming out of any war zone, I think. Yes, I mean, all sorts of ways that this is happening, by the way. To give an example, Ukraine's are using Russian prisons of war. So I saw an amazing interview. Um, well, it was a press conference stroke interview uh, yesterday in Kiev with a Russian officer who was, who was talking about, you know, all of the, the fallacies as to why they were told they were going into Ukraine. A lot of them were told a bunch of lies. Are there examples of Russian prisons of war using their own mobile phones to ring up their parents or friends and back home. And you can imagine what then, what then happens, that that information that they give over their mobile phone is spread over the village and town. So the difference between now and the 80s, when the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan, is that the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state. There was no social media, there was no internet. Now, Russia is not, Russia is a dictatorship, but it's not to that extent like China, which blocks everything. And so this information will get to the Russian people and is getting to the Russian people in all sorts of ways. And even in the 1980s, I remember my actual MA was about the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, my MA thesis. And I, even then, I remember that a lot of information seeped out. I mean, it's, you're never going to close it off completely. And it went back, and that was one of the factors that led to the unwinding of the Soviet Union. Another great example is the hacking outfit called Anonymous. On Sunday, they hacked into Russian TV channels at the time when they display the news programs and put on the screens, you are committing genocide in Ukraine. So Russian viewers, a lot of them, especially middle age and higher and old age, get their news still from TV news programs. What did they see? They saw videos of Russian aircraft bombing Ukrainian cities and these signs condemning that. So even there, in a dictatorship which heavily controls the media in Russia, they weren't able to completely control it. So I want to talk about the potential outcomes of this invasion to begin with. So the first question on that is, what would a Ukrainian victory look like? Well, um, I think something along the lines of the Russian army sort of slowly creeping away and returning to Russia or or just dropping, getting rid of its equipment. I mean, there have already been examples of Russian soldiers just parking up their vehicles and leaving and walking back to Russia. (laughs) Um, They just don't want to fight. Others have deserted to the Ukrainians. There was one funny example of two Russian soldiers walked into a police station I guess pretending to say, we've run out of petrol, can you help us? And they were arrested. I mean, were they really looking for petrol or were they just saying, we don't want to really fight, come on, help us out? So we don't know to what extent the massive sanctions, and we are talking about massive sanctions, unprecedented sanctions against Russia, how that's going to impact on the Russian economy and financial system. Is there going to be a default as 
people are predicting in Russia? Is there going to be a sort of 1998 crash in Russia? How is this going to impact on opposition, on, on the other thieves in the circle around Putin? Are they going to start thinking, well, maybe it's time for this old angry guy to go? So all of that is one aspect. The Ukrainians, what, what would they want? Well, they'd want the, the status quo to be returned to Ukraine as it was prior to the invasion. So I don't think anybody's going to really seriously say get out of Crimea or maybe in, in those eastern regions. But certainly for the Russian troops to pull back to where they were prior to the invasion. But of course, the two major questions are going to be reparations for the huge amounts of damage. Is that going to be paid for by some proportion, some percentage taken off uh, future exports of oil and gas from Russia? And secondly, war crimes trials. We have an unprecedented situation where Boris Johnson and others are already publicly describing and comparing Vladimir Putin to Slobodan Milosevic. So because of all that data and information that we've just been talking about, will be available and will be continuously is is now being continuously collected there will be a huge amount of information that can be used in a war crimes trial i mean that kind of data and information wasn't available in the 1990s in yugoslavia but now there will be now this you'll have information overload the courts now that is the optimistic side of the coin and some say unrealistic maybe but we'll see let's look at the pessimistic eventuality what happens or what does a Russian victory look like? Well, this is where it becomes, and I understand why the question has been made, but this is, this is where it becomes difficult to understand Putin's end goal. Putin believes he's a pre-Soviet Russian nationalist. He's reverse, his nationalism is reverted to Tsarist era Russian nationalism, which denies the existence of Ukraine and Ukrainians as a separate country, separate people. So these are all Russians waiting to be liberated by Russia. We, we are back to an era where the three Eastern Slavs are three branches of a pan-Russian nation. Okay, Putin wanted to remodel Ukraine and Ukrainians into little Russians, as it was over 100 years ago. But what he's done, he's done the exact opposite. He's created 45 million Ukrainian nationalists. I mean, that's what he's done. The, the greatest amount of bombing and damage has been done on, against Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine so far. Potentially people who in the past, or at least prior to 2014, were pro-Russian. There is no pro-Russianism left in Ukraine. So, okay, Russia takes over Kiev. I mean, that's already a big if. I listened to um, another interview today where a military officer said, you need something in the region of six to one Russian soldiers versus a Ukrainian defender in a big urban environment like Kiev. Kiev is four million people. Aleppo and Grozny, which were flattened by Russian forces, were far, far smaller. So a, a ratio of six to one, you're talking about 180, 90,000 Russian troops just for Kiev. And believe you me, there's already a lot of, a lot of military equipment hidden there already and waiting. So, okay, if they take it over, finally take it over, and Zelensky has to move to Western Ukraine, so what are the Russians going to do? Try and take over West Ukraine? Well, that's the most nationalistic part of the country. In the 1940s, Ukrainian nationalist partisans fought for 10 years against Stalin in Western Ukraine. I somehow doubt it. Okay, they've taken over Kiev. They install a pro-Russian puppet. He'll last a few days before he's assassinated. I guarantee. And what legitimacy does he have? I mean, who's going to recognize him? And as soon as Russian troops withdraw from Ukraine, that puppet regime collapses. So does that mean that Russia is going to keep half a million of its troops in Ukraine in forever? Well, that means no troops in Kaliningrad, no troops in the north, no troops in the Caucasus, not on the Chinese border, not in Central Asia. I mean, the Russian army isn't that big. I mean, that's where it becomes irrational. And that's where I think you hear about dissent amongst Russian security forces personnel as to th this is not logical because Ukraine is a huge country to occupy and it has the third largest army in Europe, together with a million reservists. Are you going to really want to have Russian or half of the Russian entire armed forces, you know, bogged down for years to come? So I think even a Russian victory here doesn't sound, what is a Russian victory? What, just wipe the country off the face of the earth? As the military analyst said in the interview I listened to today, even when Stalingrad was flattened, 
Soviet forces emerged from those from those ruins and defeated the Nazis. It doesn't mean even if Kiev, well, I hope not, Kiev is flattened. I somehow be surprised, and the then the casualty rate is going to go through the roof. If we already have ten, eleven thousand, to put that in perspective, that's more than what the Americans lost over eight years in Iraq and over twenty years in Afghanistan. I mean that is huge. Of course, the difference is sorry that United States, Britain, and so are democracies. Uh, governments are accountable for those casualties. Vladimir Putin's a sociopath. He doesn't give a damn about human life. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's, it focuses on one man, on Putin. And there are fears that he could escalate this war within Ukraine because if he is losing, and as you say, and we're going to get into the last 10 days of what's happened just in a little bit, if he is losing, he could begin a new strategy, which, as you say, is to flatten Ukrainian cities, completely destroy Ukrainian morale, you know, murder thousands of civilians. You know, some people are saying he's been pretty moderate so far, and we could see a massive escalation within Ukraine. Do you think that's likely? I mean, is it within Putin's character to back down on these sort of things? Isn't it for him all about the prestige of Russia and the prestige of himself? Well, it's not so much prestige. I wouldn't put it that way. It's personal. He's obsessed, and he has been. I mean, people like myself and others have talked about Putin's obsession with bringing back Ukraine for over 10 years. Um, When he came back as president in 2012, he came back believing he was going to be the gatherer of Russian lands, like the old Tsars. He would go into history as the gatherer of Russian lands. And Crimea was first, Belarus second, Ukraine third. Now, the problem with that Nobody in Moscow, and I mean nobody, not even academics, understand Ukraine. And that's why they really screwed up on the, on the invasion. Uh, they really did believe that Ukrainians would be offering them flowers when they invaded. And they were not. They were offering them Turkish drones and uh, stingers and, and javelins. To what degree Russia will go up to? I think it, it's possible. Putin is a sociopath. I, think, I don't know why it's taken so long for us in the West to understand that. I mean, after Salisbury, how much more evidence in in, in Aleppo and how much more evidence do we need? But Aleppo and Grozny were Muslim cities. And I don't want to make this a race thing, but they were Muslims. The Russian attitude towards both Muslims in Aleppo and Muslims in Chechnya was racist and Islamophobic. Kiev is a bit different matter. Kiev in Russian nationalist eyes like Putin is the mother of Russian cities. Kiev and Russia. Ukrainians don't agree with that perception, but that's what Russia... There's a statue that Putin put up in Moscow in 2016 to a Kiev ruler. Actually, he, he ruled Kiev Rus when Moscow didn't exist, but that's a separate question. Would he really flatten the mother of Russian cities? That would be rather odd. But yes, he's angry. He sees the war in Ukraine as his personal war against the West. And it's also become personal between him and Zelensky. These are two very polar opposite people. One is a Soviet, a homo sovieticus, Putin, and a Russian nationalist, somebody who was involved in the gangsterism and corruption of the 90s, and another person who who didn't get involved at all in the Wild West 1990s, who made his own way, and who's of of the post-Soviet generation. He was never involved in Soviet affairs. I mean, he was born too late for that. He was born in 1978, so he was only about 12 when the Soviet Union collapsed. So one has no nostalgia for the Soviet Union, the other one does. And Zelensky's made Putin look weak in the eyes of the West. I mean, Zelensky has a hero status in the West now. Putin looks terrible in comparison. Well, is this not a very dangerous moment for the entire world, not just Ukraine, when Putin feels that he has been humiliated or weakened or whatever? And I want to talk about the external pressures upon Russia, and that links in with that original statement I just made. So sanctions, you mentioned sanctions earlier. Now, there are people who say sanctions are ineffective. If they worked, then Putin wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. He understood that there would be massive sanctions against him, and he did so anyway. If they worked, he wouldn't have invaded in Crimea and done all these other things in Chechnya and Georgia and other things in the past. So perhaps they're ineffective. And the second point on sanctions, and it's really important, is that not only do they impact our own citizens, 
Oil prices are extremely high at the moment. Inflation is rabid throughout Western countries. People's energy bills are incredibly high. So there's a, a toll on us. But also there is a massive toll on the Russian people, who are many of whom are completely innocent. And, and this is nothing to do with them. It's to do with one sociopath at the top of their government. So on the external pressure, is it likely to work? And are sanctions ineffective and even amoral? Sanctions are not immoral. I mean, I mean, you know, what's the alternative? The alternative is to NATO to go to war with Russia. I mean, the argument about against having a no-fly zone is that NATO then would be NATO planes would be butting heads with Russian planes, and that could escalate to something worse. So the only alternative to that is really sanctions. No, I think it's I think it's a wrong way of looking at it because the sanctions. First of all, after Georgia 2008, after Russia's invasion of Georgia, and there were no sanctions. The West let Russia off. President Obama actually launched a reset of relations with Russia in 2008, 2009, which was rather ridiculous. In 2014, the sanctions imposed for Crimea were pathetic. They were small. Experts talk about them in comparison, say they were about three out of 10 in terms of their potency. They were not Iranian-style sanctions. The sanctions today are as tough as the, the ones against Iran, or even tougher, and we are talking 8, 9 out of 10. So it's a completely different ballgame. You can't, I mean, I think where you, what you could have argued is that if tough sanctions had been imposed um, in 2008 in response to Russia's invasion of Georgia, then Putin might have thought about maybe not doing Crimea in 2014. A lot of this is to do with signals. Because Putin got away with Georgia, he thought he would get away with Crimea in 2014. He was wrong. It was a slap on the wrist. It was nothing, nothing big. He also, you're right as well, that he was convinced, wrongly, that the West would be divided, split, weak, and, and impose similar sanctions to those in 2014 for his invasion of Ukraine. He was wrong there. And, and I think where you can criticize the West is that they did not stand up to Putin far earlier. I mean, Putin did tell the West in February 07 at the Munich Security Conference, we're at war and we did not want to listen. Let's talk about a no-fly zone very briefly. You mentioned that earlier, and I think you've tweeted about this even today, implying that uh, perhaps this is something that the West should get involved with. There is obviously concerns, as you mentioned rightly, that a no-fly zone would lead to complete war with Russia. It would be a massive escalation, perhaps even a nuclear war. Obviously, Russia is a nuclear armed power. They've got Putin at the head of it. They're talking, Putin's already talking about putting the Russian nuclear deterrent on, on high alert. So surely a no-fly zone is sort of madness in a way. Well, it depends if, if we move away from it always talking about it as a NATO option. Why does it have to be NATO? Yes, if it's NATO, then the potential for escalation is there. But why can it not be United Nations? United Nations does have a mandate to create safe havens in war zones. Um, so a safe haven could be created in western Ukraine. There are four four regions of West Ukraine, sort of west of the river's brooch, that could be designated by the UN as a safe humanitarian zone. That would help a lot of countries in Central Eastern Europe because those refugees wouldn't have to flee further west. And there's, we're already talking about two million as of today. So it could be the UN, it could be um, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I think we should get away from just thinking about it being a NATO operation. And then the other final potential angle, there's been a, a lag. Something's holding up the, the movement of about 60 jets to Ukraine. Poland is willing to give over its Soviet-era MiGs to Ukraine, and then Ukraine could create a no-fly zone in, in effect, um, or at least hammer Russian fighters in the air and hammer Russian artillery. I mean, the key thing is to stop the bombardment of cities. Um, that's the key thing, because on a troop-to-troop -troop, uh, fighting basis, Ukrainians are doing quite well. It's more the destruction of buildings and the killing of civilians, which needs to be stopped somehow. Those MiGs could do that. Now, the Poles are saying, yeah, we can transfer them over. In return, we want planes from the US. So something's holding that up. I don't know what it is. Obviously, it's, it's secret. It's not out in the public domain. But that's another, another, another way to help as well. I think the West is going to face a dilemma because if Putin does go down the path of flattening 
more and more cities, is the West really going to do nothing? Is the West going to just keep accepting those refugees? The more um, Putin flattened cities, the more refugees will flee to the West and the more stress that will be on Central European and Western countries in terms of the refugee flow. The fears are it could be as many as 7 or 8 million. And this is the biggest crisis in Europe since since 45. Of course, the West isn't doing nothing. I mean, Britain, for example, has been supplying Ukraine with weapons, with N-laws for a long time and been training the Ukrainian army since 2014. And I suppose there, maybe this delay in supplying these planes to Ukraine is explained by the fact that this is such a serious, could be a serious escalation and maybe they're reviewing what could be the response if this happens. So, you know, this is a very significant thing that we're talking about, I suppose. We are, but yeah. let's put it out there already that NATO is already at war with Russia on this. Three areas. NATO members... Now we're talking, it's not just NATO members, by the way, it's now 28 countries. 28 are supplying Ukraine with weapons that are killing Russian soldiers. Germans are supplying weapons to Ukraine that are killing Russian soldiers. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Secondly, uh, NATO is supporting Ukraine on cyber warfare. There hasn't been a single successful Russian cyber attack on Ukraine during the invasion. That says something. Thirdly, NATO is providing intelligence to Ukrainian armed forces, which is allowing them then to kill Russian soldiers. So let's stop pretending. We're already involved. Yes, the jets and potentially some kind of air support, uh, surface-to-air support, is an added part of that. But it, we're already involved. We're already involved. And the, and the American goal, like in the 1980s in Afghanistan, is to bleed the Russian army dry. I mean, that's so they, so they come to the negotiating table. So let's, let's stop pretending. So we're going to get on to Afghanistan later on in the interview. And I want to talk about, in one moment, the last 10 days of this invasion. But before we do all of that, I want to ask about your own personal experiences in Ukraine and with Russia, your sort of background. Now, to people, this war may seem like a distant place, sort of thousands of miles away from them. Obviously, they're looking at images on, on the internet and on their news programs, and it's terrible. But it's sort of difficult to personalise it and empathise sometimes when you haven't heard someone's story, I guess. So perhaps you can talk about your own background. And I was looking you up, obviously, beforehand on Wikipedia and things, and it seems like you have a very extensive sort of connection to what's going on at the moment in Ukraine. Well, it's a bit of a groundhog day. It kind of reminds me a bit of the 1980s when I was fighting the Soviet Union. I was um, I was a smuggler. <laughs> I smuggled books, journals, small Xerox machines, fax machines. I don't think any of your younger viewers will ever have, uh, have heard of them, but uh, fax machines. And other sort of silkscreen printing. Again, I don't think many young people will know what silkscreen printing is. So all of that we were we were smuggling into the Soviet Union in the 1980s. A lot of the time it was with the help of the Polish underground. The Poles, the Poles had a massive solidarity underground during martial law in the 1980s. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, we thought it's the end of history. It's done. We've won. And now we're back to square one again. Is that what it seems to be like? Um, I grew up in God's own country, Yorkshire, um, and did all my university in Britain. My The last thing I did was a PhD at Birmingham. So I've been following as an academic journalist that part of the world, the former Soviet Union, um, since the mid-1980s. I've uh, My first book came out in 1992, Ukraine, Perestroika to, to Independence. Since then I've done I've authored or co-authored or edited about 22 books plus articles. So, I mean, I've written about the whole region, not just Ukraine. And in the last, well, since 2014, I've been about five times to the front line, to the war zone. Never thought in my entire life I would be putting on flak jacket and helmet and everything and uh, talking to soldiers, but there you are. That was important because uh, I would say 95% of the people who were writing about that war never actually visited Ukraine or the war zone. 
So it was good to get sort of some local understanding of what was ha- what, what was happening, why why it was happening, and I traveled throughout the sort of southeastern part of Ukraine, which is which was then anyway, um, a lot of it was Russian speaking. And that kind of reluctance on the part of Western Russianists, uh, Western academics working on Russia, to get their heads out of the sand, as it were, and to see reality of what's happening, that this is a product of Russian uh, great power nationalism and chauvinism in Russia, only began to change, I would say, in the last couple of years. Um, Putin authored this 6,000-word essay in July of two, uh, 2021, where he openly talked about, you know, there are no Ukrainians, Ukrainians are Russians are warm people, etc., etc. I mean, he'd been saying this for a long time, but for some reason this essay was picked up by everybody. And then Medvedev wrote an even worse article, the former president Medvedev, in, in October of, of, of last year. A lot of people in the West, academics, policymakers, journalists, began to basically move to my my position which i've been i've had for the last eight years i was out there a lot earlier than everybody else and even ben wallace the uk defense minister is writing in the same way as i am now he wrote an essay a couple of months ago where he he basically said yes this is all to do with national identity and russian nationalism denying ukraine so i i think things have moved on um just by incredible coincidence my book came out at the end of january with routledge Russian nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian war goes into all of this. It goes into the whole problem of Russian national identity and that Russians to this day don't know where their borders are. What is Russia? I mean, they still can't figure this out. I mean, is it the... Because they never really associate Russia with the Russian Republic in the Soviet Union and now. And so hence, other countries are always... um, prone to being attacked. So obviously on a Thursday morning, Russia invaded. Can you talk about the progress that they have made? Ukraine claims to have killed 12,000 Russian soldiers, destroyed over 300 Russian tanks, downed dozens of Russian helicopters, over 30 planes. So obviously we've got to take that with a pinch of salt, but can you describe their sort of advancements in that last 10 days? Well, the thing you notice when you compare Ukrainian forces and Russian forces is very obvious. Ukrainian forces are angry, they're determined, they have fire in the belly. You just look at any of these Ukrainian forces, um, they have that. They've been given the means, both uh, domestically, because the, the last eight years the Ukrainian army has really, really evolved very well, and also because, of course, Western military supplies. So they've been given the means to do the damage, shall we say. And I think that fire in the belly has been strengthened even strengthened by two things. Russian brutal tactics. And secondly, uh, Zelensky's leadership. If he had fled in the first day, of course, things might have been different. But he hasn't fled and is refusing to flee. So he's proven himself to be an amazing commander-in-chief during a war situation. That means that Ukrainians will not give up. I don't see how, I don't see any evidence that that is going to lead to them capitulating. On the Russian side, it's the exact opposite. And you see this when you see with interviews with Russian prisoners of war and just generally the way that they're operating. They're operating very sloppily. We were told supposedly by Western Russian experts on the, on the military that since 2008, since the Georgian war, that Russia had gone through military reforms. Well, it doesn't look that good to me. If the Ukrainians can give the Russians a pounding, NATO would flatten them in a couple of days. So I think what we're seeing, in effect, is an an existing declining great power is going to decline even faster now because of everything that's going on. The Russian soldiers are demoralized. They they don't have fire in the belly at all. They don't really know what they're supposed to be doing and what's their goal because often they were just lied to. Um, they were told they were on exercises and then suddenly they were over the border. Again, there isn't that same atmosphere as in 2014 when they invaded Crimea. And Crimea has this mythical connection to Russian identity and nationalism. So that was popular. This isn't. And the Russian officer who was yesterday at the press conference said, you know, it, it's very disheartening for Russian soldiers when they see these unarmed civilians, including older people, coming up to them and calling them fascists and saying, what are you doing in my country? And, and, and so all of that has an impact on the Russian soldiers and, and it makes them less determined than the other side. And you notice that in, in the, the battles. 
there's a lot of sloppiness as well. I mean, just like trucks and, and small units of tanks driving without support, so they're easy to be picked off. We don't know, you're right, yes, you, you should take these results with a pinch of salt, but there's a lot of destroyed Russian equipment. I mean, it seems to be literally every day I see new new video footage and photographs. So even if it's only 60-70% of what the Ukrainians claim, it's still a huge amount. So I, I think it's a, the, two, the two contrasts are evident, and that impacts on why the Russian advance has been sluggish. I mean, they've been fighting for 10 days and they've only captured one city, Kherson. And even in that one city, there are non-Ukrainians with no weapons confronting them in peaceful protests. So it's interesting, you said earlier in the interview that it was expected that Ukraine, that Kiev would fall within a few days, that Ukraine would capitulate very, very quickly. I'm just curious as to know whether, A, that was the case before the war. Did people seriously think, you know, was this a realistic prediction that Ukraine would fall within mere hours or days or weeks or whatever? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is Russian logistics. There's been much talk about this huge Russian convoy heading towards Kiev. Now, we know that that is there because we've seen satellite images of it and it seems to be not moving and they're they're finding it very difficult to supply and to uh, sort of send fuel to their tanks and their trucks and whatever. Do you think that Russia is completely incompetent? Is this on purpose? This seems absolutely bizarre that an alleged military which was meant to be reformed as you say and modern can go into such a disastrous logistical place as they did even you know this has been compared to their trip into Afghanistan. Well, I think there's going to be a, a, a number of different factors. Ukraines are picking off that convoy, so that's one thing. Secondly, to even the non-military observer, people are stunned as to why you would have this huge convoy making it easy to be picked off without backup, without support there. Thirdly, the Ukraines have been, I think, good at striking at Russian command and control centers. I've mentioned two very senior Russian officers have been killed, one just yesterday. And, and that must, as, must then impact upon coordination of these Russian forces uh, deliberately. I wouldn't be at all surprised that some of that is, is a product of the NATO American intelligence that they're giving over to the Ukrainians as well. And thirdly, we should never discount corruption, incompetence and corruption. I'm sure, sure the Rus- Russian soldiers have been probably selling some of their, some of their petrol. You see Russian soldiers looting shops because they're hungry. They haven't got food. So I think it's a mixture of all of those different factors. It doesn't look like a very coordinated military response. That in itself, I think that uncoordinated response has um, allowed Ukrainians to be successful in picking them off. On on that first point about the predictions around Ukrainian Kiev, Well, I I think I always felt that, well, we can discount the Russian Russian side because they they just believed Ukraine would fall within within one or two days, like Kiev, because they're they're all little Russians waiting to be liberated. That's a ridiculous side. In the West, I think it's more that you have these Western experts on the Russian military who are literally um, Google-eyed and infatuated by when they research Russian military um, issues. And and I think they exaggerate these issues such as reforms, uh, the size of the Russian military, not taking into account anything to do with Ukraine. So, I mean, I've listened to a lot of, in the last four months, sort of November to February during this uh, crisis, I listened to a lot of these Western experts, and I, and I kept wondering to myself, and I said this on Twitter, how many times have any of you been to Ukraine? How many times have you ever even looked, investigated what the Ukrainians have done in terms of their military reforms and, and build-up? And so I think they suffer from some of the same problems as people in Moscow, that they are so into that Russian scene, as it were, that they, they don't get the Ukrainian side. Um, they don't understand Ukraine identity. So you'd always get in the West um, this idea that, that the, you know, Ukraine's divided into a, a nationalistic Ukrainian-speaking part and a pro-Russian, Russian-speaking part. Well, I'm sorry, that was exaggerated anyway before 2014, but it's even more exaggerated since then because majority of Russian-speaking Ukrainians are patriots of Ukraine, and we see that now. In many of the videos I'm watching where Ukraine troops of destroying Russian equipment, they're speaking Russian, those Ukrainians. 
Why should we be surprised? I mean, many of the Irish nationalists in 1916 spoke English. They did not all speak Gaelic. I lived in Toronto for 15 years. Most of Canada speaks English. They're Canadians. They're not Americans. The Russians don't get it, though. And I think a lot of these Western experts on Russia don't get it either, that you can, you can be a Russian-speaking Ukrainian patriot. That was true before the invasion, and it's definitely true now, because I don't know anybody in Ukraine who's left... Who's, who's pro-Russian today. So I think it's a mixture of all of those, the, those factors. As I said, in 2014, and to some degree now, everybody becomes a Ukraine expert. And yet, probably 95% of them have never been to Ukraine. They never read Ukrainian materials. And, and they, they haven't got a clue about the country they're talking about. I actually, um, in a book I wrote, uh, a book I published in 2020, it's called Crisis in Russian Studies, where I, I went, in, went into all of that how all of these Russianists in the West, these experts in Russian centers, they're commenting about this crisis and about this war, and they never read Ukrainian materials. They never go for, to do interviews in Ukraine or field research. They never go to the war zone. But they're all experts on Ukraine. Perhaps the West has a real crisis in its own experts, and we've seen that through a series of foreign policy mistakes. Just look at our, our withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, I interviewed Mark Giletti. Now, he's a fantastic, I think, expert on Ukraine, just as, you, as Russia was invading Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about the fact that Ukrainians could start a long, prolonged war of guerrilla warfare against the Russians. Now, do you think that that is a realistic uh, opportunity? Do you think the Ukrainians have the willpower, as someone who's been to Ukraine and know about Ukrainians, do you think they have the willpower to, to do this? Yes, they do. But just on Mark Galliato, I mean, he, he published one of the first books on hybrid warfare after 2014. He never used a single Ukrainian source in that book. And that was typical of Russianists. Yes, Mark Galliato is, I, I agree with you, I think he's a great analyst, but they've become lazy in only using sources from Russia, primary sources from Russia. In an era when it's easy to use sources from anywhere. I mean, you can just, I can sit in my house here in Holland and find Russian sources in Russia and sources in, in Ukraine. Everything's online now. But Russianists in the West continue to only use sources in Russia, not sources in Ukraine. And yet Ukraine's the country that's experienced the biggest, uh, greatest degree of hybrid warfare of any country in the world. And so why is Mark Galliotti using Ukrainian sources? Yes, of course, there will be a partisan warfare. The West will feed this. Um, West Ukraine borders four NATO member countries. The one thing the West is paranoid about, or NATO is paranoid about, is um, that, that Russia somehow wins and then moves on to the three Baltic states. What we're talking about, a partisan warfare would begin if Kiev was taken and if, if Zelensky had to move and create a government in exile, say, in Western Ukraine. Now, in Russian nationalist policies and in Putin's plans, there's been no um, sign that they want to capture West Ukraine. Because for, in the Russian, what they call the Russian world, the Ruski Mir, Western Ukraine is outside that. Because they're all a bunch of crazy nationalists. They're not pro-Russian there. They're not little Russians there. So if that's the case, then that would be an area where NATO would train, supply, keep supply lines going of military equipment to the Ukrainian partisans. So we would be back to the 1980s with Pakistan and Afghanistan. The danger here, though, going back to NATO being becoming involved, the danger here is that in the 80s, Soviet special forces did do military raids into Pakistan to destroy military depots of equipment that was destined to go to the Mujahideen. And so would, would Russian special forces not do the same and try to raid NATO member countries, military depots in those countries? A GRU has already blown up uh, military depots in the Czech Republic in 2014 of weapons that were destined to go to Ukraine. So we have a precedent. So I think that NATO might not want to see escalation, but I think it's going to be inevitable to some degree even though, of course, I don't want nuclear war. Of course, I think hopefully we can take that for a given uh, for anyone. Can you talk about some of the other conflicts that Russia has been involved with in the last 30 years? So you mentioned Afghanistan, but they've also been in Syria, 
in Georgia and obviously um, within the Crimea and in eastern Ukraine in 2014. How does this conflict compare to those conflicts and why hasn't Russia learned from its mistakes? Because there's lots of talk about the Russian army basically not, not, not having enough experience to work with the logistical problems that they're having, for example, now. So can you compare this conflict to those previous ones? Putin did not invent hybrid warfare. Um, the Soviet Union was doing hybrid warfare for decades prior to 1991. And they were sending him, they were building up proxies. I mean, for example, in, in the 1980s in Angola, the Soviet Union used Cuban proxies to fight UNITA, to install a Marxist regime there. The Soviet Union was funding terrorist groups like the Biedermeinhof group and others, and including the IRA. It was funding, supplying the IRA with weapons through Libya. So there was, all of these things were taking place in the Soviet Union. They continued under Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s, and of course, even more so under Putin. And with the advent of the internet, social media, these are, all of this activity has gone on to steroids. These types of hybrid warfare and activities and creation of frozen conflicts have been taking place since the time the USSR disintegrated. Russia used Armenian proxies to capture 20% of Azerbaijani territory in the late 80s, early 90s in Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding area of Nagorno-Karabakh. Moldova's Transnistria region in the early 1990s as well, Georgia in the early 1990s, and then again in, 19, in 2008. In all of these occasions, the West ignored it. I mean, didn't really do anything about it. It claimed it was seeking some kind of peace deal in all of these conflict zones, these frozen conflicts, but they were all half-hearted and... Nothing came about from them. The only way that one of them was resolved was in 2020 when Azerbaijan, with Turkish help, managed to take back territory that Armenia had occupied for nearly 30 years. Crimea was always a bone of contention from day one of when the USSR disintegrated. Practically every component of the Russian political spectrum never accepted it, it being part of Ukraine, both Sevastopol and Crimea. And territorial claims against Ukraine over Crimea took place throughout the 1990s. So it wasn't, this again, this is not just a, a purely Putin phenomena. But of course, it's one thing having a territorial claim, and another thing, Putin sending military troops in there. Ireland had a territorial claim on Northern Ireland, but didn't send troops against the British in Northern Ireland. So what changed was Putin, and that was because he became more and more nationalistic, um, during his uh, different presidencies from t from the year 2000. And in 2014, he was a very angry man because he was insulted for the second time by Ukraine, the first being in the Orange Revolution in 2004, the second in the Euromaidan Revolution, where the individual he wanted to uh, have elected or to be in charge of Ukraine, this, this kleptocratic pro-Russian thug, Viktor Yanukovych, was prevented from running, ruling Ukraine for the second time in 2014. And he was removed. Then he was removed in 2004 in the Orange Revolution. He was prevented from being elected. In 2014, he was removed or he fled. And then he was impeached because he was scared. And uh, Putin said, and now I'll show you what you've done. And he invaded and took over Crimea. He didn't believe that the West would do much like in Georgia in 2008. He was wrong, but still it wasn't as big a deal for the West as now. In fact, Western sanctions in 2014 only really began after the shooting down of MH17 in July of that year uh, when 298 people were killed. So Crimea was always different in that sense, always something that the Russians never accepted. And even opposition politicians like Alexei Navalny support the annexation of Crimea. So... We have this misconception of Navalny. He's, he's a liberal nationalist. Yes, he would never have launched an invasion of Ukraine. There's, there's no question about that. But he does support the continuation of Crimea being part of Russia. So let's, let's be clear. On the question of Ukraine itself, most Russians do are sympathetic with Putin's viewpoint that Ukraine should be always part of the Russian sphere of influence. Russia's always demanded that Eurasia should be recognized by the West, by the US, as, it, as its exclusive sphere of influence. And, and that means no NATO in Eurasia, no European Union, and no UN peacekeepers. Because this is, this is my place. And this goes back to the problem I said earlier, that the Russians don't have an idea where their borders are. Um, I mean, what is Russia? Is it Eurasia, or is it the Russian Federation? 
and they'll probably say both. So to finish this interview, I want to ask about the new era of geopolitics following on from this invasion of Ukraine. They talk about a new Cold War or the Cold War reinstating itself or whatever. How do you view this new era of geopolitics? What will be the impact on ordinary people in the West, for example? What do you think is going to happen? I think that we're only now coming to realize that this is not a Ukraine-Russia crisis or a Russia crisis even. This is a global crisis. This impacts on all sorts of areas, from socioeconomic, as you mentioned, inflation, higher fuel prices, energy. Look at how Germany has changed. You know, Germany sending weapons to Ukraine, Germany cancelling Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Look how it's led to the a greater resolve and unity of NATO and the EU, which we thought had long gone, gone by. It's given impetus for a post-Brexit global Britain new foreign policy, as you've said, in the case of supporting democracies like Taiwan and Ukraine. It um, certainly has led us to finally realise who the hell's in charge in Moscow, that we cannot have any resets, we cannot have any dealings with these people. And yes, we are in many ways back to a situation of Cold War deterrence, yes which means higher, higher military budgets. Donald Trump, for all his faults, was right to complain that most NATO members never spent 2% of GDP on the military. And it was at the time, back in sort of 2014, it was only about 5 out of 29 NATO members. Now it's a lot, it's gone up. And Germany, finally, is going to spend 2%. So I think it's going to impact across the board. China was certainly watching to see how the West responded to this invasion. And if the West had responded like Russia expected, very weakly, then that would have been dangerous for Taiwan. And I think now uh, Taiwan should breathe some relief because um, I don't think the Chinese are going to want to do something on Taiwan now because they've seen a quite a tough Western response to the Russian invasion. Russia is the most sanctioned country in, in the world at the moment, more than any other country. It's completely isolated. 250 companies have left Russia. Russia's de facto back to 1991. I think it's worth pointing out, and just on that last point about Russian sanctions, that the West still buys $700 million per day worth of Russian gas and Russian oil. So we're basically, in a way, indirectly funding Putin's army and Putin's invasion. So that's one point. And of course, you know, North Korea and Iran might, maybe perhaps they're more sanctioned. I don't know. Maybe you can argue about that. So we are still, in a way, propping up Russia. And if, and if you look throughout the entirety of the Cold War, the West still, or America still bought huge amounts of Soviet grain. So perhaps there is a bit of a comparison there. But anyway, we're not entirely uh, sanctioning them yet. No, we're not. I mean, I think the only area that you're right, that now there's a, the beginnings of a debate which is whether there should be a, a blockade of Russian oil in particular. I'm, I've not heard about gas yet. And countries like Germany are saying we need time to transition. They've just turned their backs on Nord Stream 2. I don't think Britain import. I mean, it's only about 3 or 4% of British energy is from Russia. So that's not a problem. France is mainly nuclear power. I'm pretty sure that is where Western governments, including the US, are thinking of trying to reduce that amount but just them, just Western countries talking about it has sent jitters around the globe and sent jitters to, to the Russian economy. But it's certainly going to be something that um, I think those are the two areas that are going to remain hot topics. No fly zone and to curb all imports of Russian oil and gas. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.